Hey, how you doing? Welcome along to another episode of the High Performance Podcast. I'm so pleased you've chosen us to hang out with for the next hour or so. And today's guest is amazing. Absolutely, totally and utterly amazing. If you've not heard this podcast before, it's where we have conversations with leading artists, entrepreneurs, sports people, business leaders from across the world about the things they've learned on their journey to high performance. And the only reason we ask the questions, the only reason we have the conversation is so that you listening to this right now can learn from them. And I tell you right now, you will learn so much from today's guest, the elite swimming coach, Mel Marshall. Competition's the bread of life, isn't it? And I I love being competitive and I've had to learn how to be competitive and also be compassionate as, as life's gone on. A wise owl told me once as a coach, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk and then you might start to think you're being a decent coach. Sustainable success is founded upon sustainable questioning and um, this sort of thirst and drive to just try and get better. And, you know, there's there's winning once and there's winning twice and there's winning better each time. And you've always got to, and I, me and Adam talk about this regularly, but you've always got to start the next one with nothing. If you try your 110% best at something, you never fail because you don't let yourself down. You'll win some you'll lose some, but you'll never, ever fail because you've given your very best. Listen, you don't get to coach the fastest swimmer in the world, probably the greatest swimmer this country's ever produced without really knowing your stuff. But this conversation, and I've said it a million times, it's not about sports. It's not about swimming. It's about people. Please, please give this episode as much time as you can. Really think about it, really reflect on it. And I'd love you to get in touch with me once it's finished. Just go to at Jake Humphrey on Instagram, ping me a message and let me know what you think of the episode. Uh, Before we get going, I just wanted to mention the power of personal relationships. Um, this episode came about because Damien is really good friends with Mel and he spoke to her at length and explained the podcast and she started listening and then she was keen to be a guest. And this week, um, I, you might know this already, but I invested last year in an eyewear brand called Coral Eyewear, which I believe in really strongly because it takes plastic out of the ocean and plastic out of landfill um, and it turns it into eyewear. Nine million pairs of glasses are made using virgin plastic every single year, which is just totally unacceptable. And Coral Eyewear are trying to make a real difference. I was happy to join the journey with them. And this week I hooked them up with Castor, who are a sportswear brand. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I wear some of their stuff sometimes. Um, And by the way, I'm not being paid to talk about this. I'm just telling you. And the reason it happened was personal relationships and I think sometimes in the modern world when we're all operating on zoom and we're all pinging whatsapp messages to each other and emails and texts I think the power of the personal relationship has been lost and I remember when I first started in television and I got an agent I had this great guy called Anthony that looked after me for the first few years and I used to love saying to anyone oh yeah yeah speak to my agent because I thought it sounded cool I thought it like it made it kind of validated me as a proper tv presenter and it's only when I started working on Formula One and I noticed how David Coulthard operated, that I said to him, you know, why, why A, don't you have an agent? And B, why do you do everything yourself? You're on the phone all the time. You're whipping off to meetings every five minutes. You know, you're hopping in the car in the evening at nine o'clock when we were all going out for dinner to go and meet someone. And he just said to me, son, as he, oft- as he refers to me always, even though I'm only a few years younger, son, life is about the power of personal 
relationships. Don't hide behind anyone. Don't hide behind any tech. And that was a really good lesson for me, actually. And it's a lesson I've taken with me for the last decade or so since I since I worked with David on the on the Formula One coverage. And I'm telling you now, once you have a personal relationship with someone, once you make the effort to say, listen, I, I know I've only met you over email or I know, you know, we've only conversed briefly on text or whatever. Let's just grab a coffee. And then you know how you always say to people, let's grab a coffee, then you never bother grabbing a coffee and it's like you just like a sort of lazy sign off. Yeah, let's meet up sometime over the next few weeks. And you both of you know it's, it'll never happen. Once you actually make the effort to go meet someone for that coffee, they can't believe you've made the effort because nobody makes the effort anymore. And it moves your relationship with them on leaps and bounds. So I just really wanted to start today by saying that I believe massively in the power of personal relationships. And uh, I think you should too. I think you'd be impressed. Anyway, let's get on with this. It's a great episode. I think you're going to love what Mel has to say. And the brilliant Mel Marshall comes next. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, listen, I'm sure that uh, you don't need me to tell you by now that Lotus are the um, founding partner of the High Performance Podcast. But this week, I just want to talk to you about something a little bit different. Just give me one minute before the podcast starts, please, please, please. Because um, something that I probably don't talk about enough, actually, on my social media um, is that I'm a trustee for the Community Sport Foundation. And being a trustee of a charity is a bit like being on the board of directors of a business. So you're basically in charge of the direction of that charity. And... We are a small independent charity, but we get to use the the Norwich City badge, which really helps us. And the Norwich City Community Sport Foundation reach tens of thousands of lives every year. We reach people from two to 92, and we do it through the power of sport, through the power of communication, which, as I just mentioned, is pretty important. And I can't thank Lotus enough because they have decided to give us a car and not just any old car they have given us the very first lotus elise 240 sport final edition off the production line so after 25 years the lotus elise is saying goodbye and the very first final edition elise off the production line has been given to the community sport foundation and even better news we want to give it to you we're running a competition in conjunction with Bridge Classic Cars, and it's £9 to enter. And if you enter, then you stand the chance of winning the car. So that Lotus could be yours for just £9. And every single penny of the profits goes to the brilliant Community Sport Foundation. If you want to enter, if you're happy to spend £9 to support a charity and take the chance on winning your very own Lotus Elise, please just go to bridgeclassiccarscompetitions.co.uk or just type in Bridge Classic Cars onto any search engine and you'll find it. Go to the competitions page, have a look at the Lotus Elise, enter for £9 and the car could be yours. And um, thanks to Bridge for their help on this. But most of all, a million times over, thank you, thank you, thank you to Lotus Cars for supporting us at the Community Sport Foundation. Massively appreciate it. Lotus, thank you so much. 
With us today, a guest who in 2004 was ranked the best in the world at what she did. Two years later, she won six medals at the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Two years after that, she quit. However, the success for her was actually only just beginning because she became a coach, most famously working with Adam Peaty, as she does to this day. And it was at that point that she embraced the power of empowering others. She has helped to send records tumbling, medals piling through being inspiring. So it's a real pleasure to welcome to the High Performance Podcast swimming coach and former athlete Mel Marshall. Mel, nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to my 70-minute counselling session, boys. <laughs> right, here we go. No, you're doing the counselling. <laughs> what is high performance? I've been listening to all your podcasts and um, I've given myself a chance to sort of answer this. And for me, like, high performance is the outcome. And to me, how you get high performance is about the process. And to me, it's finding, it's evolving. It's delivering the best version of yourself, your culture, your environment, your people every single day at a sustainable long-term and short-term pace. And that to me is, is, like I say, what high performance is. High performance is the outcome and the process of how you get there is the interesting part of the journey. Obviously, we've now asked that question to about mm, 50 plus people. I think you're the first person, Mel, who has mentioned evolving in your answer. Because I think one of the mistakes we make as human beings, we find high performance and that's it. We found the formula. Whereas evolution is obviously something that's on your mind when you talk about high performance. So why is that? I think you go to sleep an expert and you wake up a novice. And I just think that if you treat life like that, every day is a journey. And I just think if you look now, the world's your library, you know, I've been out running with you boys for probably 40 runs over the last 18 months. And every time I come back in from those runs, when I hear, you know, people like Joe Malone talking about the art of resilience, when I hear um, Richard, um, the army commander, talking about the power of moral courage, you know, you, you know, you feel yourself evolving every single day. And I think that it's about a growth mindset. It's about how do you make the best version of yourself every single day? And, and that's what, you know, that's what my life's about as a person, as a performer, as a professional. And and I, I love it. I literally, you know, I love it. I wake up in the morning and don't get me wrong. I still have the days where I just like, oh, come on. Is it over yet? But most of the time, the majority of my response is, right, what's out there to explore? How can I get better? And how can I win life today, I suppose? And what do you do when you're having one of those ugh days? Well, I put a cold Copperberg in the fridge and I wait till 7.30 ah, at home. That's high performance right there. <laughs> there <go in. laughs> so Mel, will you take us back to your origin story? Because I do know a little bit about your background and I'm interested in when you first developed that growth mindset because you weren't coming from an environment where high performance was necessarily all around you. Yeah, I mean, it comes from my mum and my dad, really. And Jake, I've heard you talk about, you know, your history and your adversity and, and does that, you know, certainly shape you for the future? And I, and I absolutely think it does. Um, you know, my mum, I won't go into too much detail, but she's had, um, you know, a few challenges around physicality over the over the years. And she sort of sat me down when I was about nine years of age and she looked at me across the kitchen table and she said to me, look, you've got two arms at work you've got two legs that work, you've got energy and you've got enthusiasm. Go out and give the world the very best you've got and don't come home until you have. And that sort of, that was really born in my childhood. And then I have an 
an overcompetitive father who literally would not want to lose anything. And, um, you know, there was just no mercy. It was like, no, you can go in goal and I, the 35-year-old strong man, will strike the ball at 100 miles an hour and you will learn to cope. And I, the professional table tennis player, will not teach you how to serve. I will just serve at you. But that in itself was a life lesson. It was a competitive hurdle I had to get over. And it was the foundations of me, my competitive you know, nature, really. Um, and interestingly, I, you know, I fought and fought and fought. And, you know, the day that I did beat him, he stopped racing. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah he retired. <laughs> he retired. So he goes like, basically, no, we're not, we're, not, we're not running racing anymore. We're not swimming racing anymore. So, but again, I thank both my parents for, you know, what they taught me in those real key lessons and, you know, competition's the bread of life, isn't it? And I, I love being competitive and I've had to learn how to be competitive and also be compassionate as, as life's gone on. So yeah, I think that's the foundations of, of where I've come from. And I had a best friend called Daniel and he had a condition called muscular dystrophy and it was a very, very severe um, disability. And he, he lived, he was given the prognosis to live to the age of 12 he lived in my village and I went to school with him and, you know, we did think, you know, did things that kids do. And, and I was surrounded and it was probably the most inspirational story I've ever been witness to living was his mum and dad called Paula and Stuart. They never saw that he was supposed to make it till 12. They, they said, right, we accept this challenge and we're going to make the very best of this boy's life. And, you know, he passed away at 36 years of age and, but he met Rihanna he met every single Tottenham player. He went to every um, football game. You know, he came to me to with me to watch my championships. And um, they would hang out all the Star Wars, the Game of Thrones. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Um, it's almost like he's a member of Hollywood or something. But to me, like people like Dan and Paula and Stuart, they're the real life people in this world that are, you know, given a, a challenging hand, but they make the decision to accept the situation and find the most positive resolution. Um, and I would say that, you know, that is, that's kind of, that's me really. That's a little bit of part of my DNA. So when did you discover your talent for swimming then? Because like Jake said in the introduction, you were an incredible athlete in your own right. So tell us a little bit about that journey of discovery. I, I started swimming when I was around seven years of age. Uh, again, there was there's some sort of kind of history around my, my parents and whether or not I had a, a physical condition that would maybe show later on in life. So it was basically like, um, right, swimming exercises all the muscles, so you're going to swim in. Uh, that journey started at four. The first fallout with my dad started at five because the independent female in me at five was convinced that she knew how to swim on her own and proceeded to drown in the small pool in Spalding. And, um, you know, then I just went three or four times a week and then I saw a swimming club and I started, they were in two lanes and I was in the public lane. And then I was like, right, I'll try and beat them. They kind of spotted me and, um, and then I, and I went from there really. And then again, that sort of competitive animal in me was just like, right, I want to win the lane. I want to win my age group. I want to win the club. I want to win the, be the best in the club. And I want to um, then be the best in the County and just never really gave up. Just like my, Boss now says I'm like a Jack Russell with a really good bone. I just never give up. But the obvious question, Mel, is why? Why did you feel you had to win? Because it's just who I am. It's uh, I've just that's what I do. I guess it's I've just always wanted to be 
good. I've always wanted to be the best version of myself. I've always wanted to win. And again, probably because my dad would never let me that, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 year old development for me was like, well, I'm going to find a way to win here, no matter what it takes. And the level is really high and I've got to get to that standard. And so that's, that's just in me. It's a blessing and it's a curse. And like most people you have a, there's the little Mel, isn't there? And then there's the big Mel and you often to find the best version of yourself, the little Mel with the insecurities and the little fighter is in there. And then you try and overtake it with the the Mel that's kind of evolving and growing as time goes on. And you went from your parents setting you challenges to, to struggling in that pool and Spalding to wanting to be the best at the club. You ended up as the best in the world, winning gold medals, traveling to major tournaments, and then you became a coach. So now you coach arguably the best swimmer on the planet. And I think if you speak to anyone, they will talk about the importance of, of your role in his success. Um, and I'm sure you'll be modest and play that down, but it, but it can't be denied. So what is it about being a coach that works for you? We had someone on the podcast called Susie Ma who spoke about infinite purpose. You may have heard it, where it's just the never-ending purpose in your life. So as a coach, what do you see as your infinite purpose? Well, I'll take you back to where I started and found my reason why. So in the Olympic Games in 2004, you know, I went into the Olympic Games ranked fastest in the world and I came out with a broken heart as, you know, they only give out 56 medals every Olympics and most people will leave with a broken heart. Good old games. that It's all good fun. Good statistics. Um, anyway, I digress. But yeah, my reason why I was born from that moment, because the competitor in me said, I, I think I can do a, a much, not much better, but I think I can do a, a really good job for athletes with everything that I know now that I've had frontline experience of. I think that I can do a really good job for athletes. Um, that coupled with my competitive spirit, that coupled with my probably innovative coaching thinking, um, that that's sort of how I found myself into coaching. And sustainable success is founded upon sustainable questioning and um this sort of thirst and drive to just try and get better. And, you know, there's, there's winning once and there's winning twice and there's winning better each time. And you've always got to, and I, me and Adam talk about this regularly, but you've always got to start the next one with nothing. And so you earn it all again. Um, and that taps into your ego, that taps into your technicality, that taps into your, your processes. But to me, I think that's how I found myself in coaching and, my reason why has always been really strong is I want to illuminate people to flourish on the highest of stages. I want to challenge people when they get that platform to do great things with it. And um, my reason why is very much about just help giving people wings to roots to grow and wings to fly. And Damien, you've said that to me before and I've stolen it. So um, if that gets some good intellectual property and hits, that's courtesy of Damien Hughes about two years ago in a service station somewhere. So <laughs> Love that. Can you go a bit deeper on, um, what was it you said, sustainable success comes from sustainable yeah, so, questioning? Like I said earlier, you, you go to bed an expert and you wake up a novice. And when you've got a performance that is is good, that is world leading, you really have to manufacture and know what to manufacture to get your motivation to keep questioning, keep asking, is there more? How do we find it? When you're on the run the first time, it's all new and it's all, we can try this and we can do that and we will get this. When you're trying to do it for the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time, you really have to manufacture that almost like 
uncomfortableness as in no it's not it's not good enough how do we have that critical conversation what is the elephant in the room that we need to discuss what is that you know conversation that we've not had or what is that technicality I don't understand that I'm frightened of the detail you've really got to push yourself to you know because it could quite easily just float along and you could just ride this this kind of high but if you want more you have to be more and if you want it to look better it has to be better and so that for me is that's that's the point really I love that you pushed over there that 2004 experience Mel but I'm fascinated in terms of going back to that that you were that competitive animal that was going in there as a favourite for those Athens games. What happened then that enabled you to discover that that powerful sense of why? I think looking back now, and I actually I actually did an autoethnography on the relationship between stress and burnout, and there's a whole host of reasons of which I, you know, I'm 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 in a place now where I'm incredibly thankful for it. Um, but to me, the thing that I would summarise that situation with is balance. You know, in terms of when you, Jake, I've, you've got a real thirst. I can see when you talk to other people around that thing with, you know, a dad and a high achiever, a dad and a high achiever, and it, and it kind of pulls you either side. And what I learned through those Athens Olympics was the power of balance. How can you push to the highest heights, but also sustain your integrity, sustain the things that matter to you, sustain the pace in which you travel out through your work? Um, and that was the thing that that taught me was the power of balance and everything. And you've got to know what your inner balance is because I think that some people have the ability to churn work and it doesn't compromise certain things. I think once it compromises your happiness, your well-being, your ability to drive harder, then you need to recheck where your balance is. But I think that answers your question, Damien, around you know what the Athens Olympics teach me about high performance. It was the power of making sure you make progress, but how you maintain a balance to strike your hardest punch. So you've got that, in terms of me, completely right, Mel, this this push and pull constantly between fatherhood and wanting to go out and be a high achiever and the big picture about what's it all about. The answer I always come back to is it should just be about being a dad, but then I feel like it, there's something else there as well. So I'm 42 and have not been able to find the answer. What what are the questions that I'm maybe not asking myself about how to how to get the balance, do you think? Maybe it's not the questions you're asking of yourself. Maybe it's the questions you're asking the people around you. I think the thing is, it's ask the people around you, but also it's a, it's a constant checking in um, because, you know, ultimately... You, what, with yourself or with, with other people? Everybody, your team, you know, and the team involves your home team and your, your professional team. And I think it's about how you regularly check in. Like, it's almost like you. we presume family and friends will just always be there. We don't we don't ring, we don't check in, but yet at work we would do every kind of debrief that you would ever imagine to make things better. Yet in our personal lives we like stop the debrief because we just presume oh that's ticked, that's all set up. Well, I just think if you want your relationships to evolve, if you want family to evolve, you want your personal life to evolve, it's how you debrief and keep having conversations about the things that matter. And again, just keeping that balance in check. And sometimes we're actually doing a better job than we think. And sometimes it's okay to strive and be the role model in what it is to try and be the best version of yourself. And, you know, I think that's okay. Your job basically, right, is to win medals for Adam and to help him win Olympic gold around now. So what if you feel that "Mm, he's not spending enough time with his newborn child or I'm not sure that he's caring enough about his friends who've always been there for him? Do you have that conversation with him 
which kind of might cause even more issues for you winning the medals because you're actually saying, go and have some home time. Yeah, I think when I started coaching, I was very in tune with my moral purpose straight away. And to me, people comes before performance. And if you put people before performance, performance will take care of itself. So if Adam's happy, if Adam's in check with his family, if Adam's home team's good, um, if Adam's feeling like his, you know, his energy cup is being filled with the right things, you know, he will perform. And that's the bit to me that I take care of first. You know, whenever Adam, you know, achieves things, I'm I'm always super, super happy for him because God, he's an incredible athlete to work with. Um, but to me, the win is that when he walks away from this, he'll be able to reflect and go, I did it right. And when I ask him the question at the end of his career, who are you without those medals? If he can answer me that, then I've won in coaching. Because to me, medals is one part of the balance. The person is the 110% the other part. And my job as a coach and that community coach in my heart that I am, that person that's in touch with my moral purpose in this journey of coaching is very much around, they have to be able to answer both. Are you happy with the career that you had? And are you happy with the person you became through the um, triumphs and, and adversities that you faced? And if they can answer yes to both of that, then that to me is all I'll ever need in terms of recognition. So when you finished as an athlete then, Mel, were you able to answer both of those questions? It took me time, Damien. Uh, it took me some hurt. It took me some anxieties. It took me some, you know, some lost space. But in the end, I was... And one of my proudest moments actually as an athlete was when I finished, you know, I mean, a lot of people won't know because, um, you know, swimming is a little bit less high profile, but, you know, our Olympic relay team came ninth and we had rested two athletes and one of those was the Olympic champion and one of those was an Olympic finalist. And effectively, we probably could have got an Olympic medal. And I remember off that ninth place whereby we just watched it. We just watched it unfold in front of our eyes. And I remember swimming down afterwards in my last swim, which was what was going to be ever. And I just remember thinking, you've done all right, you have. You know, and the reason I, I found that space was because of the traumas that I experienced in 2004 and the reflection space that I'd given myself after that. And it came down to this. If you try your 110% best at something, you never fail because you don't let yourself down. You'll win some, you'll lose some, but you'll never, ever fail because you've given your very best. And if I look back at my athletic career, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't try anything different because I look back and go, I give it my best. I didn't win all of them. I didn't lose all of them. But every time I stood up there, I stood up there with integrity and passion and my very best effort and my heart and soul on my sleeve. And I'm proud of that. My mum's proud of that. And that's all I really need, really. Oh, I love it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So who helps you now then as a coach? And now that we transfer from you're not an athlete, now you're a coach and a person. Who coaches you now with keeping those questions honest and 
allowing you to retain that balance? My coaching mentor, who I have on speed dial, uh, I've been working for seven years. I can be pretty logical and systematic with the way that I go about things, but to actually get there and get rid of the frustration and anger I sometimes feel, I need a, I call it like a, it's an offload to a reload. So I need to offload my frustrations to reload my actions. And for me, you know, that the coaching mentor, I've had some great people that I've, you know, I've grown up through swimming with. Um, and also as well, you know, a, a lot of the, I talked to a lot of people. I, I went on a journey a couple of years ago, Damien, as you know, because I came and interviewed you. And again, just, I went and I was a bit lost in my leadership and I was like, what do I need? What do I want? Where am I at? Who am I? Where do I sit in this kind of, this new role? And I just went and, you know, I spent time with 24 different leaders from different places, you know, including people like Alex Ferguson, Eddie Jones, yourself, um, Adrian Morehouse, some really great people. And I just felt myself growing from that experience. So I guess when I'm, I'm lost and I don't know how to find the answers, to me, sometimes Winnie the Pooh is right. Sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. And then sometimes the other side is you have to find the answers that you don't, you don't have. And sometimes that explorative space where you don't quite know what you're looking for, like when I'm not sure whether I want to go on a run and then I go on a run with a high performance podcast, I'm like, I wasn't sure that I was looking what I was looking for, but actually thank you, Joe Malone this morning for telling me what you've told me, you know, to me, it's that always have someone that you can be a sounding board to, so you can offload to reload, take time to explore. Sometimes you don't know what you're looking for until you explore. And the third one is just keep asking questions, keep checking in. What answer did you find Mel when you had that, that time out? And you went and spoke to all those people. Well, it's interesting. And Damien, you absolutely nailed it. And like you literally, I don't think you quite understand how thankful I was after that conversation around how you, you basically put a framework around a lot of lost thoughts. Um, And I was, I'd come from a, a program where I was, where my position in my leadership role was all up front, all doing everything you know, all singing and dancing. And then, and then I came into a system, which is an amazing system. Um, but I was like, I'm not sure where my role is here. And the, the culture was still a great culture, but it was a different culture to what I had delivered when, when I delivered it as the, the sort of the leader of my program. Um, but once I found out what rules I was playing against, I was able to come up with this kind of new skill set. So Damien, you've talked about it before. I am 110% commitment culture leader. That's just who I am. Now, I sit inside a system that isn't like that, but it's still working incredibly well. I've had to learn how to lead in a different way. Like I'm very upfront leader, whereas I've had to learn how do I invisibly lead here? How do I influence? How do I create the changes that I want and not get the recognition that I would like, which is really important for me as a person to sort of like be seen or it's love for me, you know, leadership, you know, in my old role, I felt a lot of love. Um, and so I had to learn this kind of new skill set of, right, okay, Mel, put your ego out of the way and it's not about you and you're not going to save the day and come in here on your giant horse. Um, you have to learn how to make the changes quietly and an influence around the edges. And so um, that was one of the things I learned. Also with those guys, the people that I met, what a fascinating group of people, but authenticity was the thing that I learned. You know, I met 24 great people, but none of them did it the same way. And I think authenticity is incredibly important, but it's how you 
have the education and knowledge and mastery to deliver your content and your communication and the way you go about your business in your authentic way. And I think that's where you really take people with you when you can have all of those things. But amazing things are like people like Catherine Granger, just on the, the opening call was just like sport matters incredibly and deeply to this country. And I'd forgotten that. And then people like um, Chelsea Warrior was head of performance for UK sport. She just said, you need to know yourself, your inner self and how you're projecting to everybody else. And just amazing things like, like that, like Paula Dunn, who's in British para-athletics, she said how to give critical, difficult feedback with emotionally sensitive preparation and delivery and just i'm making notes like you wouldn't believe right here (laughs) (laughs) would you just explain the importance uh, you know through the work with damien as well of commitment culture for people listening to this you know we have a lot of teachers we have a lot of business leaders we have a lot of people working in teams and they're always looking for for help and advice when it comes to cultures what is it why does it work so well for you i think it works so well for me is because it it aligns with my moral purpose and I think if you're in line with your moral purpose and you're in line with your reason why I I think there's this this 10% factor the 20% factor that you can get out out of people for no finance for no for nothing just because they're all aligned to one mission and it's really easily seen I always talk about the endurance of parents so when I was in my old club job you know the endurance of some of these parents at five in the morning till seven at night, selling on the tombola to help raise funds, helping with charity missions, you know, helping at the meets and stuff. I'm like, their moral purpose was, sounds really, really soft and flake, but love. And they were so in line with their, you know, the how much they loved their children and how much they loved what their children were doing. They gave you an extra 20%. And I just think it, it comes back to that is you, it comes back to me is like, You've, you to create a real commitment culture, you have to lead, inform and inspire people to fall in love with the same things that are important to you, but also to fall in love with the journey they're going to go on to reach a destination. And even if you win or lose at the end of the destination, the journey that you create to get there, they will always look back on as something that, God, I'm glad I took that opportunity. How common is phrases like love? Because I'm interested in that club period where you were delivering phenomenal results, but you had the chance to shape it. How how unique was that in your experience, Mel? I think a lot of people do it. I think when you look at the volunteer communities of sport and every, and people, you know, people do it for the love. They don't do it for, you know, the finance or anything. But if I look at why did we make something possible in an impossible situation? And it really was, Damien, it was just about daring to love something, naively pursuing it and just not giving up on it. And if I look at the love and passion and commitment I gave the kids, the parents, the committee in those, you know, those first six years of my job. And then I look at what I needed in the last two years of my job and how much I got back. Oh, it was tenfold. Even now, if I ring one of the parents that I, you know, Rihanna Sheehan's dad, you know, I took his daughter from 12 all the way to 18. She had a great journey. If my, if my gas boiler went in the middle of the night, he would come and help me because, and I gave, I gave my full commitment and, you know, full passion and everything to to those kids at the time. So I think it's what we're so afraid of now is we live in a society and systemically, if there are, Klopp spoke about it the other day, if there are a hundred things that go well, most people pick up on the one thing that's not great. And I just think that we get crushed and crushed and crushed. But I think you've just got to keep coming with the 99 things that are great every day and find those things 
and not let the one thing crush you down. One of my swimmers said to me once, kill them with kindness. And God, it's powerful. It's like, you know, when that road rage person comes across and tries to, you know, cut you up. I remember being dressed as an elf one Christmas and I thought, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to kill this guy with kindness because I'm going to get out and dance in the middle of the road like an elf. And everyone was like cheering in the area. But it's just like, you know, I was in control of the situation because I was like, I'm going to kill you with some kindness here, mate. Love it. Would you tell us some of the successes then that you had in that club environment beyond the obvious of seeing Adam and his emergence? I'm interested in some of those other human stories. Like I love the idea of the guy coming to fit your gas boiler. Yeah. What are the sort of stories that still light you up and, and keep you warm at night? Oh, there's so many, Damien. And, you know, I'm a community coach. I'm a performance coach, but there's still a community coach in me at heart. And, you know, I took a group of kids and they were from the age of 12 and I saw them all the way through to 18, really. And there were so many stories of triumphs, but we had this mantra of you're going to go to your Olympics, whatever that might be. That might be the county championships. That might be the actual Olympic Games. There's no ceilings. There's no boundaries. I just want your energy, enthusiasm, and your constant commitment, and we'll get you to your Olympics, whatever that might be. That might be to finish swimming and go on to college. That might be to do your A-levels and balance that out with swimming at the same time. And and if I look at what came out of that programme, I started that programme and it had 12 regional standard swimmers. I had four lanes, I had dodgy lane ropes, I had 30-metre pool that had not been emptied in 45 years, that would regularly break. And in the end, I left, I had Adam who won the Olympics, I had a young guy called Lewis who got a bronze at the, Par- at the Paralympics in the same year, I had two kids on scholarships to America, um, I have kids with thousands and thousands of memories around what we did, like we would go, there was no gym facilities, so but we would just run in the the local um, town centre. And at Christmas, I'd make everybody dressed up as Santa Claus, in, including Kyle's dad, who hated running. And we would have all the kids around the city of centre of Derby just running around as Santa Claus. And I'd have them doing, you know, Christmas challenges. Now, in my little mind, it was like, well, actually, if I pretend by taking them bowling and doing fun barbecues, then what I'll do is I won't lose a week of training before Christmas when they all normally slack it off. So, um but there was a real good story around a girl called Fran Baldwin. And she she works for me now and she's a master's student at Loughborough. And now Fran, she wasn't the most talented swimmer. And she was one of three, um, three girls. And her dad brought her the first time. And he was like, um, look, we're not getting too involved. We're going to go a couple of times a week. Eight years down the line, he's got one kid in America. He's been on the team manager for seven trips and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, so... Fran Baldwin just really encompasses everything that we tried to do in that program because I think we got her to her Olympics, which was a national championships. And she, you know, the qualification standard that she needed to do, she was the anchor leg in the relay and she just blew something out of nowhere. Um, But that to me is the power of sport. And you can have all the technical manuals in the world and all of the detail from all of the best scientists in the world, but it's human connectivity, it's enthusiasm, and it's emotion that finds those brilliant moments. You look at the pyramids, right? You didn't see a you didn't see a spreadsheet there, did you? You saw like we want to do this, and we're going to get all these people in one place with a great vision, and we're going to make something impossible happen. And that's what people go to work for. They go to work for that human connectivity, and and that you know that moment. Like that's the beauty of sport, isn't it, guys? It's like it's the only thing left whereby because of the cutthroat nature of it in some ways, but it lifts people out of their seats in the living room. 
it's so good when it comes off you know it's like those stories of triumph and and misery and suffering and how people have found a way through and I think it just makes me think about the Olympics this summer and I just think the NHS has been in charge of health and what a job it's done but I feel my moral purpose this summer is sports in charge of hope and I, I feel very, very proud to, you know, take the hope for the nation into a summer games and go and get and show people, you know, despite the world going stationary, there's been some people that have found a way to find amazing performance. And, you know, I feel so proud of, you know, the guys that I work with and what we've been through and and how we can potentially provide some hope this summer that, you know, things can think can things can still move at a fast pace. So inspiring. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us like this. It is it is wonderful to sit here. And as I, I keep worrying that I'm looking down, I'm only making notes, right? It's not, <laughs> I'm not listening. There's so many things I want to sort of take out from this. I'm just writing down about uh, the pyramids being a good lesson for us to realise that it's not all about spreadsheets and, and, and mathematics equations. You sit here and talk to us and you are so sort of deeply connected emotionally to your athletes, to your sport, to your sort of infinite purpose, to what you want to achieve. And I think that, of course, you still do the real hard stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute, but how you really get someone like Adam to dig so deep that he doesn't feel he can go any further and you push him a little bit further than that. But you clearly have so much to give, so much to offer as a female. So why are only 10% of elite coaching roles filled by women? What's going on here? I think it's a really interesting question. and I'm glad that we are starting to now ask the question because I think if we ask the question, we can start to find the solutions. Um, to me, I think it's about it's about platforms. It's about creating role models. I think it's about putting people in positions whereby they have the opportunity. You know, some research would suggest that they would employ a male based on what they think he can do, whereas a woman has to have already done it, which is an interesting concept. I used to be a bit blind to all this because I'm I'm probably just quite hell bent and tough. But if I look at, I have had to be extraordinary to get into the position that I've been in, and I just think it's about why do people have to be completely extraordinary to be in a, in a good position? Why can't they just be, you know, really good and ordinary? If I look at the battles that I've had to face over the years, and it's, it's, it's some of them have been quite extraordinary, and we should make it much easier. It shouldn't be this. It shouldn't be difficult to um, try and bring yourself to the forefront when you've got a good skill set. And the other side of that is we have to be good enough. Like I'm, I'm a big believer of you don't just get the job because of you know, we should be ticking boxes. We need to be good enough. And I think that if we start talking about it and creating opportunities for people to be good enough, that's a really nice, that's a really good starting point. And what are the things that as a female coach you offer that no matter how much a male coach will try, they, you don't think they can? Or is, or is, that, is that not something? I just think an, any good coach um, has a coaching toolbox. Any good leader has a leadership toolbox. You know, a good leader knows how to be the disciplinarian, the teacher, the priest, the counsellor. It's all those kind of things. And if I, I summarise this, and I, it's much thicker and deeper than just men and women, but I think there's feminine qualities to leadership and coaching, and I think there's masculine qualities to, to leadership and coaching. And I think a good coach has the breadth to be able to flex across all that spectrum. So to me, a more masculine trait would be autocratic, um, direct, uh, and quite disciplined in the way that they would give feedback. A more feminine way of doing it would be empathetic, understanding, questioning, and listening. And to me, a good coach should be able to do what you would class as feminine qualities and masculine qualities. And 
if I look at me, I would say it's much as a, as a, as a female, I think I've got a good skill set when it comes to, you know, providing direction, setting clarity and, and having those tough and challenging conversations. And I'm also good at crying and showing empathy. And if I asked a male coach, I'd be like, have you ever cried in front of your athletes? And I've, my, my SNC coach, who I love to bits, he was like, I cried in like seven years. It's a problem. Um, so it's, um, I just think it's about how you go into your coaching toolbox and you realize that there are potentially more masculine ways of doing it and more, more feminine and, and explore those feminine traits. But both of- male and female coaches can offer both hundred percent it's it's a skill like you're an actor and like you need to be able to act in every role and you need to be authentic and and know your content you know Matthew McConaughey talked about when he went into that role and he and he winged it the first time but when he owned who it was it then became authentic so to me it's about being able to do the whole spectrum and range you know your ability to do what you would like you know sometimes my coaching mentor would say to me, say, look, you need to get better at, you're really good at damsel in distress and you're really good at Iron Maiden. You struggle with the bits in between. And it's the same thing, you know, as if you're a male coach and a female coach, if a male coach, you might be really good at, you know, the Iron Maiden, but are you good in the asking for help and showing the, uh, your vulnerabilities and showing your insecurities around certain things? Hi there, we're here with Think. We're going to be talking about bad habits, both on the road and off the road, and talking about whether or not we think they're acceptable. As well as that, we're gonna be dissecting some of the bad habits of some of the most famous sports people on the planet and highlighting how they've managed to kick them to the curb. So Damien, this next segment of the High Performance Podcast is brought to people in association with Think. It's so interesting to see how people's minds work, I think, when they're behind the wheel. One thing I've noticed, just how much more respect I tend to have for people that just drive sensibly and responsibly on the road. And if someone has got bad habits behind the wheel, you look at them and think, you don't care about me because you're driving like this with me in the car. Whereas people who clearly are driving sensibly because they're looking after themselves and the people around them. They're the kind of people you want as your friends. A true mate, we just acknowledge it and let them know that we're grateful and we appreciate that you're being mindful. Okay, so let's focus then on some of these sporting stars. Well, first up, I'm gonna offer Phil Foden when he got himself into a bit of trouble with some female company in Iceland whilst on England duty and it caused him some issues. Compare that now to someone who looks so sort of in control of what he's doing on the pitch. I think we've both enjoyed watching Phil over the last 12 months and I think when you see that greater responsibility for his actions, it's hard to argue that he's not a better player and I'd argue a better person for that. It's about consistency Mm. of good habits. Let's talk about some of the really common habits. People who drive faster because they know the road, so they know the risks. That's a classic first uh, red flag for me. And I think becoming familiar with anything in the car is a bit dangerous. It's these what seem like small errors that actually can be totally catastrophic. So I've got another one for you then. And I'm going to talk about LeBron James, because when he first started his career, you know when you've been the best at school and the best at college and you, like it's all about you and you're the main man, he always used to try and score first. That was the big thing, rather than bringing in his teammates into the game. When he was at the Cavaliers in 2007, they were beaten by the Spurs because he was sort of more focused on his own game. As he progressed, he developed a mindset of being team-oriented. It's a very similar story to one where you get in the car and you make a decision to get rid of your phone. In a sporting context, that's exactly what he did. He made the right decision. So, shall I give you one last example? Canelo Alvarez, I know you're into your boxing. Do you remember early in his career, he was obviously supremely talented and he could punch, but he would just be gassed a few rounds in. He then realized the issue was he wasn't focusing on his stamina, 
he worked on that and then when he fought Austin Trout he was able to do the business because he, he had some stamina. There's an old saying in the boxing ring that there's nowhere to hide. If you've sort of taken shortcuts in your training they will be exposed underneath the bright lights of a boxing ring and I think that's a great way of thinking about some of these bad habits uh, that we can get into when it comes to driving. If you've been checking your phone, it slows you down by a split second. So those people who just take their eyes off the road just for a second to check notifications. You've probably travelled 20 or 30 metres. A lot can happen in 20 or 30 metres. Exactly. I think it's quite scary sometimes to get that sense of perspective. We've got that one friend who just thinks he's some kind of superhero behind the wheel and that he's immune checking his social media updates, quickly calling someone, going a little bit over the speed limit. And I think, for me anyway, those people who've got a really high regard for their own ability behind the wheel so they can take those risks, they're the ones that, that really worry me. Yeah, you're spot on, Jake. I think there's something to be said for the mate that watches the speed when they're driving, the mate that chooses not to check the phone. I think the key message for this is that look out for each other, call mm. each other out, catch each other out and catch each other in when your mate does something out of order behind the wheel of a car. Mates respect mates who don't take risks when they're driving. So do you get feedback from your athletes, Mel? And would you tell us about how you go and ask for that? Absolutely. Uh, me and Adam actually sat down. It was a great session. Me, him, and the um, psychologist. Uh, it was two weeks ago. And I just wanted to check in on our relationship. You know, we've been working together for 12 years. It's kind of changed shape over time. And we just sat down and, you know, ordered a gourmet kitchen, kept it nice and informal, which I do think is, you know, a beautiful place for really shaping people's behavioural change and influencing people and we just talked about stop start continue so i said okay adam in our relationship what do you want to stop what do you want to start and what do you continue what do we want to continue and then i did the same exercise for him you know we talked about the olympics you know our arena skill set together i said what do we want to stop what do we want to start and what do we want to continue and we, we were supposed to be a 45 minute session we were in there for an hour and a half and and then what we finished with was like almost like a positive affirmation for one another okay what's our super strengths? So Adam, what do you think my super strengths are? And then my task was to, to basically say to Adam, okay, my, I, I feel like your super strengths are. Because again, back to your point, Jake, about being a dad, really, we forget to come to the forefront with the things that we think are amazing about the people that we're with on an intimate level. And, you know, me and Adam have worked together for 12 years. And so that relationship it is, you know, seven hours a day. It's, it's, it's got a whole shape of, you know, complexities, but we have to make the time to remember why it's such a good relationship and why it still works and why, and also revisit it and how can we evolve it and how can we just keep it in check? And I would regularly, you know, do different things in different ways for other athletes about how I check in, how I'm doing for them, what do they need? But someone, a wise owl told me once as a coach, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk and then you might start to think you're being a decent coach. So applying that principle then, Mel, what would you say has been the best piece of feedback you've had from one of your athletes? Probably Adam, actually, um, just around he wants the feedback quick, he wants it honest and he wants it in a safe environment. So he doesn't, you know, if I'd said to him in the past, you know, I was, um, I didn't know how much, how much honesty he, I was always, I would always be honest with him, but how much of what I saw he wanted to hear um, in terms, and he was like, I, I want to hear it. Um, now he changes his mind sometimes because he doesn't. That would probably be the most honest that one of the best bits of feedback and also have had quite a lot of 360 feedback from staff and coaches and athletes. And was, what was quite nice about that was I was doing way better than I thought. I thought I was 
uh, which was lovely because I was just thought, like, oh, I actually thought I was much worse than this, but people think I'm actually all right. So, because um, again, as a leader, as a coach, you're the one out front, aren't you? You're often when you're trying to be pioneering and the first time of doing anything, it's like, God, I'm not, I am, I'm actually not quite sure, but I've got conviction in my choices and I'm, I think it's a calculated risk and we're going to go for it. But you are often, you know, getting that trusted feedback from a source that you respect and knows the situation well enough. I think we get a little bit buzzwordy, don't we, with feedback? It's like, I'll just throw a bit. It's like, no, you have to have it from the people that are really, really close to you. I've got quite a few questions about feedback, if you don't mind, I want to dive into because I think it'll be so useful for people that listen to this podcast to hear. So first of all, you said you weren't sure how much you wanted to hear. Do you start with minimal amounts of feedback? and build it up and get more honest and not necessarily more brutal, but more blunt until you think, oh, I'm not sure this is working and you're watching the athlete's reaction. Or do you start from the other direction where you give them everything and see how how they react and maybe start to pull it back? I think it goes back to my point earlier when I said about people before performance. And I think when you're giving that feedback, you've got to know, you know, of course, see it, say it but see it, say it at the right time with the right understanding of that individual. So I've got, you know, nine athletes and not one of them would receive feedback in the same way. I've got one particular athlete that would be really adverse to receiving feedback. So I think when you give, if ultimately your overall goal is you want that person, that organization, that culture to grow and progress. Mm. That's the purpose and intention of your feedback. You have to understand, unless you understand the people that are receiving the feedback, your intention might be good, but it may not be received that way. So I think the question is to ask ask the right question first. Okay, I've, I've got some pretty critical feedback here. How would you like me to deliver this? Is it a right, the right time for you? Um, is it something you want to grow on? Um, give them the choice to receive it. Then that way, not only are they empowered by receiving it, they are empowered by the fact that they made the choice to receive it. So you get a double win. Uh, and then the final piece is then, um, because it was their idea to receive it, then it's their idea to own it and change it. So it's basically, you know, double manipulation really. But Very smart, very smart. <laughs> so the athlete that doesn't like or d- won't accept feedback, is it not your job as their, as their coach to coach them in the uh, important ability to accept feedback? Absolutely. And, you know, it, for me, it's also as well, I will always go to a point where I will see that person's capability to grow. So if I think it's going to damage my relationship and they're probably just not at that space yet where they can grow in that that time, um, then I, I will wait. So to me, again, it's the right time, the right ti- the right timing, the right type and the right place. And if it's not the right time for the feedback for mm. them, it's never going to, all you're going to do is damage your relationship. So you have to wait. Timing is massively key. Like I, I saw things. It's hard though, isn't it? Because you just want to give them the feedback and improve them as quick as possible. Absolutely. And we are in a time-based sport. You know, we've got, we live from hundredths to hundredths and, and weeks to week and days to days. But I think if your intuition gives you the, if you know the person well enough, your intuition, you know, sometimes I go back, it sounds really weird, but sometimes the best thing to do can still be to do nothing because your source of feedback is one potential source of source of growth. Also then working it out on their own and that exploratory learning is also a source of growth. And ultimately you've got a, it's risk versus reward. If the risk and you have to have that critical conversation is going to give you a reward, mm. then you need to have that critical conversation if the risk outweighs the reward that you're going to damage it and the person's going to be destructed afterwards and the momentum that they'd already made up was going to be lost, it's not the right time to give the feedback. And the final sort of question on, on, on this whole feedback thing, 
is how you give the feedback. What do you do? How do you empower them to come up with the answer? Do you empower them to come up with the answer? Do you just lay it on the line and simply say something's not good enough? Um, again, I go back to the person. Like some, like I have, like I have nine athletes, and one athlete would want, can I have the instructions for what's next and a plan and a detailed A, B, and C, and I'll just do that, and I'm happy with that. Other people want shared ownership of their their journey, and they want to be heard and seen and in, included and ex, and explore with you and go on the journey together. So I guess it's it's knowing. You can have a team goal, but you have to have an individual focus. Mm. And I think if you have that individual focus and realize that not everybody's the same, not everybody's going to get to destination X the same way, not everyone's going to get there at the same speed, the same time, I think then you start really empowering the people that you work with. You know, you do you at the end of the day, and it should be the same principle when you give feedback or what's right for that individual person at this time that's going to create the better performance for the overall collective. Brilliant. Um, can I ask you one final question about this? How different is it giving them feedback on a technical element like you need to improve your breaststroke compared to, let's say you're watching a swimmer and you know they've lost their motivation or they think they're giving 100% but you actually know that there's more. Do you deliver it differently if it's uh, if it's something psychological rather than something physical? Absolutely. Because the, the thing is when you give technical feedback, you're te- critiquing what they do when you give character feedback you're critiquing who they are Mm. which is a much more difficult conversation to have and so I think that's the chemistry piece the relationship piece the relationship and how good that relationship really cements how fluid and how connected that communication how quickly that can happen so my message on the feedback thing around when you have to have those critical conversations it's like the power of your relationship at the first space will determine how much feedback and how quickly that can be coped with under stress and pressure. Brilliant. I think there's a really incredible skill that you have, Mel, that you've taken some of these kids at 12 years of age and now you're dealing with adults and you still have the ability to put their relationships at the front and centre. Would you explain a little bit about, because there's lots of parents that listen to this, our teachers, is there a difference in terms of engaging a child in many effects as opposed to dealing with an elite Olympic athlete? There's some similarities and there's some difference. I think for me around parents, I call it the competitive hurdles and loving eyes can never see. So like when you're a parent, I don't know. I have got two jogs and I am crazy about them. <laughs> but I think there's this you know, reluctance to let, let, the kids, let, let the kids get over the competitive hurdles themselves. And if we remove all of the – so if there's a 100 metres track, right, and there are 20 competitive hurdles. And once they've got over those 20 competitive hurdles, they are going to be more full of people, more determined, more capable, more able to cope with the challenges that are going to come their way in adulthood. Then that's a good route for them to go. If parents, coaches remove those competitive hurdles, when they get to the end, when they get to 18, they won't be able to cope with anything because they thought that it was an easy, smooth road. So my thing to anybody that's working with those development years is put as many competitive hurdles in their way and effectively help them to get over them. But also if they can't help them understand why they can't, you know, when Adam was in his young years, people thought I was crazy. I took him on a training camp to Zambia. I took him on a bike ride as well, where we cycled 500 kilometers across 
basically it was 42 degree heat and the reason I wanted to take him there was because to me I wanted to help his character understand you know life isn't easy it's not a bed of roses it is difficult it is challenging there will be good days there will be bad days people that you know and love will pass away there will be divorces there will be um, all those things and sports the same thing there will be wins there will be losses and it's just about how you triumph through all of those and accept that that is the journey that you're on and I just think that less is more like the, I do think now, unfortunately, you know, I use an example, my friend's 23 year old son, he went to a job interview the other day with 1400 other people for a 25 grand a year job. He came from a school that basically gave him participation medals when he was younger. So he thinks that, well, I, I participated, I should get something for this. We're setting him up to fail because that's not how the world works when you get past the age of 18. And I just think now we're, we so want to helicopter them out of all the challenges. It's like, no, we have to let them learn and grow from each challenge and just be there to support them through those challenges, not remove the challenges. So there's some brilliant parallels there with, say, reading about what Bob Bowman did when he developed Michael Phelps's character. So the story of him deliberately breaking his goggles before a race to see how he could cope with the adversity of, of having to swim without them or, you know, turning the lights off or not giving him a drink of water that as an outsider, you might appear cruel or you wonder why you're doing it. And you've explained why. Have you ever done anything like that with Adam to develop his competitive instinct and his ability to deal with adversity? Yeah, 100% all the time. That's everything we do. And I think it was Richard Dennett that said about it, wasn't it? It goes in terms of how do you simulate what's required in your practice and do it at a higher level so that when you you know come under pressure, you just revert to type. And albeit it's, it's, it's not the same as the military for sure, but that's everything that we do. You know, I would over-prepare Adam so that he would be, the race itself would be easy. And if you listen to him talk now, I mean, um, he talks about it's just two lengths of the baths, but, you know, it's, I can't remember who said it, but it takes a it takes a genius to work out to make it that simple in the end. But everything, you know, I've done so many things with him. Like, okay, when I took him to Zambia on a training camp, you know, when I went to Zambia in the October in this OYDC place, the, the water in the 50-meter pool was blue. When I went in January, it was green and it did have no visibility at the bottom. And they did say that it would open at eight o'clock and it didn't open till 10.30. So we had to climb over the gates every day. They did say there would be breakfast at eight and there was not breakfast ever. And they did say there would be cutlery and you would get a fork for your cereal. And the purpose when I took those 12 kids to that camp was because I wanted them to cope with, you know, it's unpredictable, but you mm. can either react to it or you could deal with it. And what I left there with, I left there with 12 soldiers, really, in some ways, 12 life soldiers that were not going to react to what came their way. They were just going to deal with it and just, you know, not make a mountain out of a molehill. And then fast forward three years when Adam went to the Rio Olympics, he had all of his kit stolen, his technical kit, his everything. And we had 48 hours. Now I was running around like a blue ass, you know, whatever, trying to find all the technical kit. But he was... He was still in the T-shirt that he travelled in three days afterwards with a rash on his armpit. But he'd almost, he'd got this mantra and developed this mindset through a series of challenges that we'd set him. That he was just like, if I have to swim in this dirty T-shirt with a rash on my armpit, so be it. And it's, to me, I've always said, it's about if somebody says the Olympics is now going to be in a shark infested pool with lame ropes, you've got to have the mindset and the character go, I'll be in there first, see it in there. And that's, that's to me, you do that, you know, I just think you train people's character 
you train their technicality, you train their character, you train their physicality. But to me, you how you can positively push and challenge somebody in innovative ways and take them to new heights, that to me is the beauty of coaching. Mel, what a brilliant, brilliant episode. We're about to move on to our quick fire questions. But before we do that, the final question for you, and this is an interesting one because we normally ask this to the athlete, but having a coach on, we can't not ask you the question. With your athletes, when they're competing, what percentage is their success down to their mental approach and what percent is down to the physical side? Uh, I think it's a balance of both, Jake. I think that you you can't do one without the other. Um, But I think in terms of reaching your full potential, your your full physical potential is is down to your ability to believe in yourself, your ability to perform under pressure without perceiving stress, uh, and your ability to, you know, bring the best version of yourself to the most difficult situation and deliver. Great. Right. Quick fire questions. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and all the people around you have to buy into. Effort, fun, and reality. Fun. That's a rare one. I'm pleased it's in there. What advice would you give to a teenage male just starting out? Do it all again, exactly the same way. If you could recommend one book for our listeners and our viewers to get their heads into, what book would you recommend? Oh, it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's excellent. It's really, really good. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Greatest strength, I think, is innovative creativity. Uh, greatest weakness is finding the ability to believe in myself when others um, challenge me. Are you happy? 100%. And finally, what's your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? Life is what you give it. Brilliant. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. We always have these conversations away from the podcast, me and David, about which is your favourite episode. And we normally come up with about 20, but I think we might have just... You're number one. I think we might have just recorded the one that is uh, is top of the list. Mel, um, man, thank you so much. Do you know what? We often say that the, the beauty of this podcast is that we speak to someone like you. You're a, you're a swimming coach but we haven't even mentioned swimming, which shows that you're so much more than just a swimming coach in the same way that your athletes are not just swimmers and the business people are not just business people. You know, we're all, we're basically all people and we're all learning things that can all be applied to everyone else's lives. And I promise you there will be tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people that will listen to this episode and take away stuff that will improve their lives. So honestly, thank you for being so honest, um, so vulnerable, so open. It is brilliant. Thank you. And if you are, when you have Pete on, say mine's the best ever. See if you can match that. Right. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. In fact, we were we were exchanging a couple of um, comments over WhatsApp while you were talking, and we've decided that you've won yourself a, a high performance podcast mug because you've listened to every episode as well. How about that? Great. And just for you, Jay, <laughs> yeah. I heard what you'd said um, in terms of um, on one of your podcasts around championing, um, you know, like women's sport and mm. in terms of like you'd said about Alex Scott, hadn't you? You know, you yeah. come from television where you got gunged and she'd been in part of the game. I just want to thank you for representing that angle. It's it's really powerful. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I, I'm a firm believer, and it probably came to me a bit late, really, that being an ally for people you know I can't be a woman can I but I can be an ally for women everywhere so um, I think we should all be an ally for each other so thanks very much for saying that that's very kind of you and Damien always a ledge absolutely oh, thanks Mal the, I've world, really enjoyed the it. world will know you're genius <laughs> <laughs> thanks appreciate the platform Damien Jake whoever the lucky how many how many athletes did she say she's working with nine she's nine she now yeah 
those nine, I mean, they must be among the luckiest athletes in the world because she seems so sort of plugged in emotionally. But you can't then question that she's so she's so clear in the way that she emotionally assesses the situations that she's in that that takes away from from the successes in the pool because it doesn't like she's literally got that approach to the best athlete in the swim pool on the planet and and I want every sports coach every CEO every teacher every parent to listen to that and realize that it is about like plugging in emotionally connecting to the people who are around you and that's look at the success that she's had from it I think a really important point to emphasise on what Mel was describing there as well, Jake, is that she was doing this in a club pool. She wasn't doing it with, with like huge wealth or great facilities or access to the best of equipment. She was somebody that was doing this in a club environment at Derby where exactly like you described, this ability to plug in, to connect, to see the person first made her exceptionally talented. She's now working on the national level with the Olympic swimmers that we've uh, that we're sending out to Tokyo but the key point is that these qualities that she's describing they're available to all of us and they don't need to cost us a penny mm. well they don't because she's just given given them to all of our listeners and viewers hasn't she right there I think the biggest thing for me really Damien and maybe because I'm a parent of two young kids I always come back to this is this this importance of building resilience in people and I think sometimes we think oh yeah when we've got a seven or eight year old we have to build resilience but then when someone's 17 years old oh there's no point doing that anymore but she talks about taking Adam who at that point was an elite athlete competing on the biggest stage in the world and even he at that point needed resilience by taking him to a difficult pool in a difficult country where it's hard to operate it's a great reminder that we can all, all the time, be looking to build resilience in a positive sense, regardless of people's age or, or the role they play in our lives. Yeah, giving people, like she said, constructive obstacles and then not clearing the obstacles out of the way, that helicopter parenting we've spoken about on previous podcasts, but actually being, there's a great phrase, not being the uh, the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side, being the person that stands next to them and helps them and coaches them and encourages them to get over those obstacles rather than sort of removing them and, and removing the opportunity for real learning. Mm. And I love the comments she made as well about the pyramids that, you know, they built those basically with sheer will, incredible determination, bags of passion and loads of effort. You know, there was no answer written down on a piece of paper for that it was about being all in as we've heard a few times on this podcast yeah there's an athletic consultant a guy I've, I've long admired a guy called Vern Gambetta that I've, I've heard him speak about this Jake where he says we get caught up in this culture of looking for marginal gains the one percent where he said the reality is just be good at the basics just be good at doing the basics before you start worrying about the shortcuts and I think the idea of like you say, we can look at all the, the psychology, the nutrition, the technology that's available, and they're all great advantages. But ultimately, it is about going out there and doing the work and connecting and, and, and putting the person before the athlete. And I love her energy because you, you can tell from, from just that hour that we've sat with her that she operates at full throttle in her life. But the love for what she's doing means that she's not exhausted by it. She's empowered by it, I think. That purpose, that infinite purpose, again, asking that question why and then coming up with a clear answer to it gets you out of bed on those mornings when you'd rather just stay in and, and, and take it easy. Go to bed a genius or wake up a novice. I, love I will that. remind myself of that every morning. Oh, she was wonderful. Mel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Thanks a lot, Damien. Thanks, Jake. 
You know what, Damien, one of the really nice things this week has been seeing the amount of people that have come to us talking about the Kate Richardson-Walsh episode. If you listen to this and you haven't heard it, um, just go and find it. It was released last Wednesday as one of our Olympic specials. Um, I, there was a lovely message actually from Tom saying, what was really nice was for me to play bits of this to my eight-year-old daughter who is so excited about the Olympics and tell her this person has a gold medal and is from exactly the same place that we are from. Her exact words were... So I can get a gold medal too. And look, we love, you know, when CEOs and business leaders and teachers and stuff reach out to us. But the fact that this gentleman's eight-year-old daughter is listening to this podcast, hearing the great words of Kate, and then being reminded that she can also do brilliant things is, um, is great, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's the epitome of that example of if you see it, you can be it. Uh, you know, it makes our aspirations and our dreams feel so much more tangible if you can hear somebody's own story. You know, when Kate spoke about being the girl that was hanging around in the park, drinking on a Friday night until she decided to knuckle down and dedicate herself to a craft. I think we can all empathise with that. So, uh, no, that's amazing. I love that. Love that message. You're totally right, Damien. Uh, totally right. And I think the other interesting thing here is, is on Tom's message, his daughter says, so I can get a gold medal too. I think there's probably something worth reminding people here that, it's not just about the gold medal. It's about living a life that that makes you feel fulfilled. And actually, if people are listening to this and they're, they're wondering how they can have that conversation with their kids about achieving stuff, but it not being about only winning the gold medal, um, have a look at our members club, the High Performance Circle, because there was a great talk on there, wasn't there, Damien, from Kath Bishop, who's a former rower. And she talks really emotionally about as she crossed the line in the Olympics and the commentator said, oh, it's only silver for Great Britain. And she felt like that moment gave the message that it was a failure. And we perhaps need to re redefine our thinking that, you know, Kate Richardson Walsh isn't only on this podcast because of her gold medal. She's on this podcast because she's lived a life that has really fulfilled her. And that is as important as, as the winning. Yeah, definitely. And Kath, who, who spoke brilliantly on The Circle, also wrote a fantastic book called The Long Win, which was very much around that. It's about the journey, not the destination that, again, every one of our guests talks around what they've learned in the process of going after their dreams has actually been more valuable than what they achieved at the end of it. Nice message as well this week from uh, Callum Blades. Hi, Callum. Says the podcasts are timeless and have steered me through some really tough times with reassurance. That is a good point, actually. They are timeless. So go back and listen to any of the previous episodes or the previous conversations because they are they are timeless. You can listen to them at any time. Um, Callum also describes this podcast as the best of humanity as well. And there's a really nice quote as well. This is from Selena and Jonathan Viner on Instagram. Their user handle is our big Swedish adventure. So I guess they're, they're doing something exciting somewhere. He says, um, the conversations inspired by listening to your podcast have really helped us when we've had extended periods away from each other. I always find nuggets of wisdom to re-engage me in my job, brackets, assistant head at a school set up from scratch last year. Kate's reflections on leadership and her honest accounts of the challenges of hearing and acting on feedback really resonated, as did her thoughts on gender perception and stereotypes. I can't thank you enough for creating this oasis of inspiration and positive energy. Wow. Thanks to the high performance team. That's a nice phrase, isn't it, by the way? Yeah, what a lovely phrase and what really generous feedback. We're talking about the power of feedback. Uh, Jonathan's given some really generous and kind feedback there that's really welcome and well-received. It's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, those, are the, those I think, are the three things that really stood out for people from Kate's episode. It was 
her ability to learn how to take feedback and at times criticism. Um, certainly her conversations about gender stereotyping and um, the perception of women in sport was important. But also, um, we talk, don't we, on the podcast about getting to people's hearts, not their heads. The fact that she, carry, as she told us, carries her emotions right just below the surface and they bubble up at any moment. I think that helped people really to understand what she was trying to say, that she was so emotional on that episode. Do you think? Yeah, there was just so many takeaways. Like, And sometimes you can measure it by what do you do differently on the back of it. And I think the stuff around uh, gender perceptions that she spoke about certainly made me think about how I address my son and my daughter and what sort of unconscious biases that we bring into it that can only be a good thing, you know, um, in terms of describing a girl as being a good girl and encouraging boys to be ferocious. That kind of language that Kate spoke about was sort of really thought-provoking. And actually, that leads me on to the final message I wanted to share on this little wrap-up. And it's perfect, Damien, you spoke about that because Annie McSherry says... Hi, Jake and Damien. Thank you for a really insightful podcast on the High Performance Pod this morning with Kate Richardson-Walsh. I really enjoyed it. It gave me a lot to think about in terms of what values really mean, how to make those more meaningful, and also how I address my daughter and my son. I'm really going to check myself to see if I do treat them differently, unintentionally. And if I do the good girl thing, which I probably do, despite myself talking with colleagues about how growing up we were taught to be polite and nice and boys were taught to be fierce and ambitious and how I really feel the need to fight against politeness sometimes to speak up. Not a manners issue, but just being so polite. And as Kate referred to, very British about things. Thank you again. That's from Annie McSherry. And it's it's definitely worth, worth thinking about, I think, anyone with a boy and a girl or even just a girl and just a boy. Think about how you treat them. Thanks a lot, Damien. Enjoyed that. Yeah, no, as always, Jake, I loved it. Thank you. And also big thanks um, for the fact you sorted out Mel Marshall. I know that she's a friend of yours from a long time ago and I think that we'll be getting some similar comments from uh, from people that have just listened to this episode just gone, don't you think? Yeah, I hope so. I think she's an incredible person um, and I think her story has got so many takeaways for anyone listening to this that is after making a difference, trying to make an impact for good. I think Mel's a perfect embodiment of that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as I said at the end of the Kate Richardson-Walsh episode, if there's something that's resonated with you after listening to this, please get in touch with us. You can find Damien at Liquid Thinker, ping him a message on Instagram. I'm at Jake Humphrey. You can find the podcast at High Performance. You can also watch all of these interviews on our YouTube channel as well. Just type in High Performance Podcast onto YouTube. And I did mention the High Performance Circle very briefly. So many brilliant, insightful, inspirational things on the High Performance Circle. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, click on the circle, become part of the club, and best of all, it's totally free. Um, as always, Damien and myself couldn't do this without the hard work of Hannah and Will and Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, so thanks to them. But most of all, we say it every week, thanks to you for talking about the podcast, sharing the podcast, and once again over the last seven days, downloading it in your tens of thousands. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to, have a good one. Mm-hmm.